Chapter Six of The Quirt by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. Lone advises silence. Twice in the next week, Lone found an excuse for riding over to the Sawtooth. During his first visit, the foreman's wife told him that the young lady was still too sick to talk much. The second time he went, Pop Bridgers spied him first and cackled over his coming to see the girl. Lone grinned and dissembled as best he could, knowing that Pop Bridgers fed his imagination upon denials and argument and remonstrance, and was likely to build gossip that might spread beyond the sawtooth. Wherefore he did not go near the foreman's house that day, but contented himself with gathering from Pop's talk that the girl was still there. After that he rode here and there, wherever he would be likely to meet a sawtooth rider, and so at last he came upon Al Woodruff loping along the crest of Juniper Ridge. Al at first displayed no intention of stopping, but pulled up when he saw John Doe slowing down significantly. Lone would have preferred to chat with someone else, for this was a sharp-eyed, sharp-tongued man, but Al Woodruff stayed at the ranch and would know all the news, and even though he might give it an ill-natured twist, Lone would at least know what was going on. Al hailed him with a laughing epithet. Say, you sure enough played hell all around, bringing Brit Hunter girl to the sawtooth, he began, chuckling as if he had some secret joke. Where'd you pick her up, Lone? She claims you found her at Rock City. That right? No, it ain't right, Lone denied promptly, his dark eyes meeting Al's glance steadily. I found her in that gulch away this side. She was in amongst the rocks where she was trying to keep out of the rain. Brent Hunter's girl, is she? She told me she was going to the sawtooth. She'd have made it, too, if it hadn't been for the storm. She got as far as the gulch, and the lightning scared her from going any further. He offered Al his tobacco sack and fumbled for a match. I never knew Brit Hunter had a girl. Nor me, Al said and sifted tobacco into a cigarette paper. Bob, he drove her over there yesterday. Took him close to all day to make the trip. And Bob, he claims to hate women. So would I, if I got stung for fifty thousand. She ain't that kind. She's a nice girl, far as I could tell. She got, well, all right, did she? Yeah, only she was still coughing some when she left the ranch. She liked to have had pneumonia, I guess. Queer how she claims she spent the night in Rock City, ain't it? No, Lone answered judiciously. I don't know as it's so queer. She never realized how far she'd walked. I reckon she was plumb crazy when I found her. You couldn't take any stock in what she said. Say, you didn't see that bay I was halter-breaking, did you, Al? He jumped the fence and got away on me day before yesterday. I'd like to catch him up again. He'll make a good horse. Al had not seen the bay, and the talk tapered off desultorily to a final so-long see-you-later. Lone rode on, careful not to look back. So, she was Brit Hunter's girl. Lone whistled softly to himself while he studied this new angle of the problem, for a problem he was beginning to consider it. 
She was Britt Hunter's girl, and she had told them at the Sawtooth that she had spent the night at Rock City. He wondered how much else she had told, how much she remembered of what she had told him. He reached into his coat pocket and pulled out a round leather purse with a chain handle. It was soiled and shrunken with its wetting, and the clasp had flecks of rust upon it. What it contained, Lone did not know. Virginia had taught him that a man must not be curious about the personal belongings of a woman. Now he turned the purse over, tried to rub out the stiffness of the leather, and smiled a little as he dropped it back into his pocket. "'I got my calling card,' he said softly to John Doe. "'I reckon I had the right hunch when I didn't turn it over to Mrs. Hawkins.' I'll ask her again about that grip she said she hid under a bush. I never heard about any of the boys finding it. His thoughts returned to Al Woodruff and stopped there. Determined still to attend strictly to his own affairs, his thoughts persisted in playing truant and in straying to a subject he much preferred not to think of at all. Why should Al Woodruff be interested in the exact spot where Brent Hunter's daughter had spent the night of the storm. Why should Lone instinctively discount her statement and lie wholeheartedly about it? Now, if Al catches me up in that, he'll think I know a lot and I don't know, or else... He halted his thoughts there, for that too was a forbidden subject. Forbidden subjects are like other forbidden things. They have a way of making themselves very conspicuous. Lone was heading for the court ranch by the most direct route, fearing, perhaps, that if he waited, he would lose his nerve and would not go at all. Yet it was important that he should go. He must return the girl's purse. The most direct route to the court took him down Juniper Ridge and across Granite Creek near the Thurman Ranch. Indeed, if he followed the trail up Granite Creek and across the hilly country to Court Creek, he must pass within fifty yards of the Thurman cabin. Lone's time was limited, yet he took the direct route rather reluctantly. He did not want to be reminded too sharply of Fred Thurman, as a man who had lived his life in his own way and had died so horribly. Well, he didn't have it coming to him, but it's done and over with now, so it's no use thinking about it, he reflected when the roofs of the Thurman Ranch buildings began to show now and then through the thin ranks of the cottonwoods along the creek. But his face sobered as he rode along. It seemed to him that the sleepy little meadows, the quiet murmuring of the creek, even the soft rustling of the cottonwood leaves, breathed a new loneliness, an emptiness where the man who had called this place home, who had clung to it in the face of opposition that was growing into open warfare, had lived and had left life suddenly, unwarrantably, Lone knew in his heart. It might be of no use to think about it, but the vivid memory of Fred Thurman was with him when he rode up the trail to the stable and the small corrals. He had to think, whether he would or no. At the corral he came unexpectedly in sight of the Swede, who grinned a guileless welcome and came toward him, so that Lone could not ride on unless he would advertise his dislike of the place. John Doe, plainly glad to find an excuse to stop, slowed and came to where Swan waited by the gate. 
"'By golly, this is lonesome here,' Swan complained, heaving a great sigh. "'That judge don't get busy pretty quick. I may be jumping my job. Lone, what you think? You believe in ghosts?' "'Nah, what's on your chest, Swan?' Lone slipped sideways in the saddle, resting his muscles. "'You been seeing things?' "'No, I don't be seeing things, Lone. But sometimes I've been like I feel something.' He stared at Lone questioningly. "'What you think, Lone? If you be sitting down eating your supper, maybe, and you feel something say words in your brain, like you know something talks to you and then quits.' Lone gave Swan a long, measuring look, and Swan laughed uneasily. That sounds crazy, but it's true. What something tells me in my brain. I go and look, and by golly, it's there just like the words tell me. Lone straightened in the saddle. You better come clean, Swan, and tell the whole thing. What was it? Don't talk in circles. What words did you feel? in your brain in spite of himself lone felt as he had when the girl had talked to him and called him charlie swan closed the gate behind him with steady hands his lips were pressed firmly together as if he had definitely made up his mind to something lone was impressed somehow with swan's perfect control of his speech his thoughts his actions but he was puzzled rather than anything else and when Swan turned, facing him, Lone's bewilderment did not lessen. I tell you, it's when I'm sitting down to eat my supper. I'm just reaching out my hand like this to get my coffee, and something says in my head, It's a lie. I don't ride backwards. Go look at my saddle. There's blood. And that's all. It's like the words go far away, so I can't hear any more. So I eat my supper, and then I get the lantern, and I go look. You come with me, Lone, and I'll show you. Without a word, Lone dismounted and followed Swan into a small shed beside the stable, where a worn stock saddle hung suspended from a crosspiece, a rawhide string looped over the horn. Lone did not ask whose saddle it was, nor did Swan name the owner. There was no need. Swan took the saddle and swung it around so that the right side was toward them. It was what is called a full-stamped saddle, with the popular wild rose design on skirts and cantle. Much hard use and occasional oilings had darkened the leather to a rich red-brown, marred with old scars and scratches, and the stains of many storms. Blood is hard to find when it's raining all night. Swan observed, speaking low as one does in the presence of death. But if somebody is bleeding and falls off a horse slow and catches hold of things and tries like hell to hang on... He lifted the small flap that covered the cinch-ring and revealed a reddish flaked stain. Phlegmatically, he wetted his fingertip on his tongue, rubbed the stain, and held up his finger for Lone to see. That's a damn funny place for blood when a man is dragged on the ground, he commented dryly. And something else is damn funny, Lone. He lifted the wooden stirrup and touched with his finger the rowel marks. That is on the front part, he said. 
I could swear in court that Fred's left foot was twisted. That's damn funny, Lone. I don't see men ride backwards much. Lone turned on him and struck the stirrup from his hand. I think you better forget it, he said fiercely. He's dead. You can't help him any to... He stopped and pulled himself together. Swan, you take a fool's advice and don't tell anybody else about feeling words talk in your head. They'll have you in the bughouse at Blackfoot sure as you live. He looked at the saddle, hesitated, looked again at Swan, who was watching him. That blood most likely got there when Fred was packing a deer in from the hills. And marks on them old oxbow stirrups don't mean a damn thing but the need of a new pair, maybe. He forced a laugh and stepped outside the shed. Just shows you, Swan, that imagination and being alone all the time can raise cane with a fella. You want to watch yourself. Swan followed him out, closing the door carefully behind him. By golly, I'm watching out now, he assented thoughtfully. You don't tell anybody, Lone. No, I won't tell anybody, and I'd advise you not to, Lone repeated grimly. Just keep those thoughts out of your head, Swan. They're bad medicine. He mounted John Doe and rode away, his eyes downcast, his quirt slapping absently the weeds along the trail. It was not his business, and yet... Lone shook himself together and put John Doe into a lope. He had warned Swan, and he could do no more. Halfway to the court, he met Lorraine riding along the trail. She would have passed him with no sign of recognition, but Lone lifted his hat and stopped. Lorraine looked at him, rode on a few steps, and turned. Did you wish to speak about something? She asked impersonally. Lone felt the flush in his cheeks, which angered him to the point of speaking curtly. Yes, I found your purse where you dropped it that night you was lost. I was bringing it over to you. My name's Morgan. I'm the man that found you and took you into the ranch. Oh. Lorraine looked at him steadily. You're the one they call Loney? When they're feeling good toward me, I'm Lone Morgan. I went back to find your grip. You said you left it under a bush. But the world's plumb full of bushes. I found your purse, though. Thank you so much. I must have been an awful nuisance, but I was so scared, and things were terribly mixed in my mind. I didn't even have sense enough to tell you what ranch I was trying to find, did I? So you took me to the wrong one, and I was a week there before I found it out. And then they were perfectly lovely about it and brought me home. She turned the purse over and over in her hands, looking at it without much interest. She seemed in no hurry to ride on, which gave Lone courage. There's something I'd like to say, he began, groping for words that would make his meaning plain without telling too much. I hope you won't mind my telling you. You were kind of out of your head when I found you, and you said something about seeing a man shot and... Oh! Lorraine looked up at him, looked through him, he thought, with those brilliant eyes of hers. Then I did tell. I just wanted to say... Lone interrupted her. 
but I knew all the time it was just a nightmare. I never mentioned it to anybody, and you'll forget all about it, I hope. You didn't tell anyone else, did you? He looked up at her again and found her studying him curiously. You're not the man I saw, she said, as if she were satisfying herself on that point. I've wondered since, but I was sure, too, that I had seen it. Why mustn't I tell anyone? Mom did not reply at once. The girl's eyes were disconcertingly direct. Her voice and her manner disturbed him with their judicial calmness, so at variance with the wildness he remembered. Well, it's hard to explain, he said at last. You're strange to this country, and you don't know all the ins and outs of things. It wouldn't do any good to you or anybody else, and it might do a lot of harm. His eyes nicked her face with a wistful glance. You don't know me. I really haven't got any right to ask or expect you to trust me. But I wish you would, to the extent of forgetting that you saw, or thought you saw, anything that night in Rock City. Lorraine shivered and covered her eyes swiftly with one hand. His words had brought back too sharply that scene. But she shook off the emotion and faced him again. I saw a man murdered, she cried. I wasn't sure afterwards. Sometimes I thought I had dreamed it. But I was sure I saw it. I saw the horse go by, running. And you want me to keep still about that? What harm could it do to tell? Perhaps it's true. Perhaps I did see it all. I might think you were trying to cover up something. Only, you're not the man I saw, or thought I saw. No, of course I'm not. You dreamed the whole thing. And the way you talked to me was so wild, folks would say you're crazy if they heard you tell it. You're a stranger here, Miss Hunter, and your father is not as popular in this country as he might be. He's got enemies that would be glad of the chance to stir up trouble for him. You just dreamed all that. I'm asking you to forget a bad dream, that's all, and not go telling it to other folk. For some time, Lorraine did not answer. The horses conversed with sundry nose-rubbings, nibbled idly at convenient brush-tips, and wondered, no doubt, why their riders were so silent. Lone tried to think of some stronger argument, some appeal that would reach the girl without frightening her or causing her to distrust him. But he did not know what more he could say without telling her what must not be told. Just how would it make trouble for my father? Lorraine asked at last. I can't believe you'd ask me to help cover up a crime, but it seems hard to believe that a nightmare would cause any great commotion. And why is my father unpopular? Well, you don't know this country, Lone parried inexpertly. It's all right in some ways, and in some ways it could be a lot improved. Folks haven't got much to talk about. They go around gabbing their heads off about every little thing 
and adding on to it until you can't recognize your own remarks after they've been peddled for a week. You've maybe seen places like that. Oh, yes. Lorraine's eyes lighted with a smile. Take a movie studio, for instance. Yes. Well, you being a stranger, you would get all the worst of it. I just thought I'd tell you. I'd hate to see you misunderstood by folks around here. I... I feel kind of responsible for you. I'm the one that found you. Lorraine's eyes twinkled. Well, I'm glad to know one person in the country who doesn't gabble his head off. You haven't answered any of my questions. And you've made me feel as though you found a dangerous, wild woman that morning. It isn't very flattering, but I think you're honest anyway. Lone smiled for the first time, and she found his smile pleasant. I'm no angel, he disclaimed modestly. And most folks think I could be improved on a whole lot. But I'm honest in one way. I'm thinking about what's best for you this time. I'm terribly grateful, Lorraine laughed. I shall take great care not to go all around the country telling people my dreams. I can see that it wouldn't make me awfully popular. Then she sobered. Mr. Morgan... That was a horrible kind of nightmare. Why, even last night I woke up shivering, just imagining it all over again. It was sure horrible the way you talked about it, Lone assured her. It's because you was sick, I reckon. I wish you'd tell me as close as you can where you left that grip of yours. You said it was under a bush where a rabbit was sitting. I'd like to find the grip, but I'm afraid that rabbit is done moved. Oh, Mr. Warfield and I have found it, thank you. The rabbit had moved, but I sort of remembered how the road had looked along there, and we hunted until we discovered the place. Dad has driven in after my other luggage today, and I believe I must be getting home. I was only out for a little ride. She thanked him again for the trouble he had taken, and rode away. Lone turned off the trail, and, picking his way around rough outcroppings of rock and across unexpected little gullies, headed straight for the ford across Granite Creek and home. Brit Hunter's girl, he was thinking, was even nicer than he had pictured her, and that she could believe in the nightmare was a vast relief. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tom Penn